again reading the introductory verses from the Gospel of John, this time as translated by the distinguished New Testament scholar, Father Raymond Brown. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was in God's presence, and the Word was God. He was present with God in the beginning. Through him, all things came into being, and apart from him, not a thing came to be. That which had come to be in him was life, and this life was the light of men. The light shines on in the darkness, for the darkness did not overcome it. There was sent by God a man named John, who came as a witness to testify to the light, so that through him all men might believe, but only to testify to the light, for he himself was not the light. The real light, which gives light to every man, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, yet his own people did not accept him. But all those who did accept him, he empowered to become God's children, that is, those who believe in his name, those who were begotten not by blood, nor by carnal desire, nor by a man's desire, but by God. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of an only Son coming from the Father, filled with enduring love. John testified to him by proclaiming, This is he of whom I said, The one who comes after me ranks ahead of me, for he existed before me. And of his fullness we have all had a share, love in place of love. For while the law was a gift through Moses, this enduring love came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. It is God the only Son, ever at the Father's side, who has revealed him. And now hear the words of the Eternal Word. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Father, we thank you for the clarity of the written word as penned by the Apostle John. And we put ourselves under his teaching in order that we might learn how better to live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. I told you a story the last time we were together, and I told you this story on purpose. I spent quite a bit of time telling the story because I wanted us to have a common experience together. I wanted you to be able to see Don Salomon parting those last corn stalks and breaking into the world of Maria and her daughter and her husband and her little grandson. I wanted you to be able to be in their shoes and think and feel what it would be like because you could have been born there and they could have been born here. I wanted you to feel what it would be like in the morning to wake up and not have a single penny in your one-room hut. I wanted you to feel the despair to look around at the cupboards and to not just see that there was a little food to eat that day, but that there was no food. And I wanted you to feel what it would be like to remember that there had been no food for three days. And I wanted you to see into the eyes of that little child who didn't quite understand why his little stomach was so hungry. I wanted you to see the desperation of her husband who, even though he was fainting, went out to try in vain to find work. 
I wanted you to experience in some small way the despair that there would have been in their hearts and yet the resignation to say, we must prepare to die. We're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and it looks as though this is our time. And then I wanted you to see from their vantage point, as impossible as it is, sitting here in North America in comfortable chairs with lighting and pianos and a sound system, but I wanted you to be transposed and see just a bit, maybe a glimpse, a tiny, slight glimpse of what it would look like from Maria's eyes to see those corn stalks parted, for you to be on her side and to look out and to see those parted and to see the face of her friend, her spiritual mentor, Don Salomon, come through those. The fact that three others of us gringos were with him, North Americans, really is inconsequential. From her vantage point, it would have looked like three Martians following Don Salomon. But it was Don Salomon she looked at. It was Don Salomon that she poured her life out to. It was Don Salomon that she, that she was overjoyed to see. And C.S. Lewis's words of his, own, uh, of his own transformation by Jesus Christ, he said, I was surprised by joy. Well, she, Maria, was surprised that afternoon, that evening, by joy as she saw him part those stalks and in stepped Don Salomon, in stepped hope, in stepped joy, in stepped love. Love with a face, love with a mind, love with a heart, love with hands, love with feet. Now, why did I tell the story? Was it in order to make you feel bad for her plight? Of course. Was it in order to make you think maybe you should do something about it? Of course. Was it to make you think, is there some area in your world that you could part the corn stalks and walk into and be the feet and the hands and the heart and the mind and the face of a loving God in the life of someone else? Well, of course. But it wasn't the primary reason. The primary reason was to try to give us a glimpse of what it looked like or should have looked like for the world when Jesus Christ himself came in through birth, normal human birth, and broke into our world, parted the corn stalks. God himself, according to John, the writer of the Gospel of John, one of the early followers of Jesus Christ, according to John, when Jesus Christ came into the world, through the normal processes of childbirth from his mother, Mary. When he walked into the world, so to speak, or came into the world, that it was a parting of the corn stalks, that for some reason, at a particular moment in time, at a particular place, to a particular people, God decided to make his entry. And the world at that time was pretty despairing. The people he came to, the Jewish people, the, the, uh, the children and great-great-great-great-grandchildren of Father Abraham, the, fa- the, the forefather of the Jewish race. Those people were in despair, much like Maria. They were occupied by a foreign troop, by a foreign army, the Roman Empire. They were brutally put down. Thousands of them were 
were slaughtered in the decade that Jesus was born because they stood up for their view of their religion. They were overtaxed. They were overburdened. They were, there was a huge gulf, as there is in Guatemala, between the rich and the poor. There was very small middle class. And into that world, God made an entrance, according to John. Into that world, he came. And I want to look at two things today. I want to unpack those verses a bit. I want to ask, well, who was it that parted the cornstalks back in, in the nation of Israel in the first century? Who was he, according to John? And then I want to ask, what did he do? And then on Monday, we want to begin to glimpse why he did it. And throughout the rest of the semester, we'll be answering or, or at least exploring the question of why. Let's start with who. According to John, who was this? When, when, when Don Solomon parted the cornstalks and walked into Maria's life, she knew instantly who it was because she'd seen him before. This was her friend. He'd helped them on other, on other occasions. He'd led them to the joy and love of knowing God. So when he parted it, she knew who he was. But who is this? Jesus. Born in a small village, a very rural village, in northern Israel, in the first century, with no VCRs. CNN wasn't on the spot. Actually born in the south, but, but from the north. Born in Bethlehem. Who was this? According to John, this little tiny baby. In fact, let's go back a stage. This unborn child. Let's go back a stage. These two cells subdividing to four and to eight and to 16 and to 32. Who was this person developing in the womb? According to John, it's almost unbelievable. The Greeks thought of, of uh, the ideas behind the universe as power, mind, and order. And they had a concept for that, as I mentioned last time we were together. It was the concept of word. They said the word is behind everything. Wisdom and knowledge and order. The Jews had a concept. They said it's not just a mind, it's also a heart. It's our God. It's the God of Abraham. It's Yahweh. That was the name that God told them to use for him. Sometimes translated Jehovah. Sometimes simply translated God. So the Jews said, if we were to put this in one concept, we would come up with the phrase, the word. So the Jews had this concept that God, wisdom personified, came down to a word. The, the Greeks had the same concept, but different in background. John, who was living between these two cultures, was trying to explain who Jesus was, and he said, in the beginning was the Word. The Greeks would have said, oh my gosh, of course, the mind behind everything. The Jews would have said, well, of course, wisdom personified, our God's wisdom personified. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. They would have both agreed with that. And the Word was God. They would have both agreed with that. But then 14 lines later, he says something astounding, which he hints at in the verses above it. He says that Word was coming into the world. That light, that true light, 
which was the light of all men, was coming into the world. It was a process. It didn't happen instantly. He said that word was life. That word was light. And then he shocked them and he said, and the word became flesh. The word became a human being. The word took on meat. The word took on bones. And the Greeks over here would have been saying, what? No, we want to get away from the human body. I mean, the truth gets us away from the physical and into the spiritual. That was their view. And they would have said, no, no, no. The, the word, everything that's behind the universe can't possibly take on a body that's sick. They would have liked it. And the Jews would have said something similar. They would have said, that's too personal. That's too, that's too concrete. That's, that's, that's too close. God is completely other than us. How can you say it, that this power, this Yahweh, this God, this Lord took on human flesh and became a baby, an unborn baby at that, and then a born baby, and then a little boy nursing at his mother's breast, and then a young boy toddling and falling over and laughing and crying. How can you say that? It almost sounded blasphemous. But John, who had known this man Jesus, who had walked with him, who had witnessed his life, said this is what it was. In him was life. In him was light. He came into this world, and he is the creator of this world. So who was it that parted the corn stalks in a sense? Well, it was the creator of the ends of the earth, according to John. Well, what did he do? What did he come to do? Just from these verses, not from the whole Bible, just from these verses, what do we learn? He became flesh and he dwelt among us. This was no quick fix. You know, he could have sent down a pamphlet. In fact, Philip Yancey in his book, the Jesus I Never Knew says this. It would have been easier if God had given us a set of ideas. That would have been easier, wouldn't it? It would have been easier if God had given us a set of ideas to mull over and to kick around and decide whether we should accept them or reject them. That would be easier. God hands out a syllabi. And he's got some suggestions on it to ponder over, to form a few task force, to discuss, maybe have a conference. That would have been a little easier. We, we know how to do that. It would have been easier if God had given us a set of ideas to mull over and kick around and decide whether to accept or reject them. But he did not. He gave us himself in the form of a person. He gave us himself in the form of a person. A particular person. He had to choose between male or female unless he wanted to come as two. And he chose a male. He had to choose between nations. He had to choose whether to be a Greek or to be an Asian or to be a, a, a Native American. He chose the tribe of Abraham. He was particular. Not because he was particularly impressed with one group over another, but he was concrete. He, he parted the stalks at a particular moment in a particular family's life. It happened to be the family of Abraham, the, the Jewish people. And it was a slow process. Raymond Brown, who we read his translation today, said, when he decided to take on flesh, 
God inextricably bonded himself in a vulnerable fashion to human history. This is not a God who is only outside, though he is that. It is a God who chooses to come inside our world. We don't know why yet. We haven't gotten to that. But John said he showed up, and he was full of life, and he was full of light, and his light was the true light, and it shines on our lives, and we've been changed by it. In fact, he says in another place a bit of his response to it, a bit of his response to this process. He wrote it in a letter to some friends that is now a part of our our Bible, and it sounds very familiar with this first chapter. It's the first chapter of his first letter called 1 John. This is what he says. He says, that which was from the beginning, sound familiar? In the beginning was the word. He's writing this at a separate time uh, and to different people. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we've looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. What's the word of life? It's the person of Jesus Christ. The life appeared, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim to you this eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. And we proclaim to you what we've seen, what we've heard, so that you may also have a partnership with us. And our joy will be complete. Very tangible. Very graphic. He says, I, I brushed up against Jesus. I touched him. At the Last Supper, I, I, was, I, was, I was next to him as we reclined and my head even went up against his chest. I've touched the word of life. And I'm here to tell you about it. Because he dwelt with us. He lived with us. Well, what do we learn from that? We learn a couple things. First of all, and if if you hear nothing else, please hear this. We learn that according to John, at least, God is not on vacation. He's not on a holiday. He isn't in retirement. And he's certainly not dead. He is active. If you begin to accept that fact, it will change your life. Because then it means God is not someone out there with whom you may have to deal possibly someday when you die. God is someone who is part of the corn socks, walked into your life, and is busy right now if you'll wake up and recognize it. That's either true or it's not. God, if there is God, is either active or he's passive. According to John, he's very, very active. Secondly, we learn that he's personally active. He doesn't just send down brochures. He doesn't pop in a video. He comes himself. He visits himself. The literal translation is he sets up his tent in our midst. He's personal, not impersonal. He's active. He's not passive. He's concrete. He's not abstract. Now, here at a college, we deal with lots of abstractions. We think about them. We ponder them. We wrestle with them. That's good. God is also abstract, meaning out there further than we can imagine, but he's not only that. He's very concrete. He became a man, a a male. 
He became a male Jew. He became a male Jew at a moment in time. He was born from a specific woman's body. He had a specific earthly father and brothers or cousins, depending on your point of view, that he lived with. He worked a particular job. He was a carpenter. He chose particular people to be his followers. He's active, he's personal, and he's concrete. And he always plays by the rules that he himself created. There's a, there's a, a tragic note in those first 18 verses. He came to his own, and his own would not accept him. He came to those whom he created, and they would receive him not. Can you imagine coming home for Christmas? You've been at Westmont all semester. You're looking forward to the home. You're looking forward to the comfort. You know how things work back home. You come in there, and the lights are out. You knock on the door. Nobody met you at the airport. You get a taxi to your house. The lights are out. But then a light flicks on as you knock on the door. And somebody from the other side says, who's there? A little nervous sound in their voice. Well, it's, it's Joanne. I'm back from college. How come you didn't come to the airport? Open the door. Who? Joanne. Your daughter, remember? I don't have a daughter. Come on, this is a joke. I'll bet all my friends are in there, and it's a welcome back party. Okay, open the door, Mom. I don't know who you are, but if you don't go away, I'll call the police. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? It's ludicrous. It could never happen. It happened to Jesus Christ. He came to his own family, the people he fashioned with his own mind and his own heart and his own plans. He came to visit them, expecting perhaps a glorious welcome. And he was not understood, and he was not accepted, and in fact, he was rejected. And later, he was brutally murdered. Strange way to welcome God onto planet Earth. So God plays by his own rules, and they're relational rules. You'll notice it doesn't say he came unto his own, and they debated his existence or not, and they decided to partly believe in it. See, that would be conceptual creedal. It's not first and foremost a creedal issue, a doctrinal issue. It is first and foremost a relational issue. Will you connect yourself to him? He wants a relationship. The doctrine, the creeds, they come in to help us understand and describe the glory of who he is. But they are not first and foremost, though they're incredibly important. And last. And this one astounds me. This one I don't get. This one, in fact, sort of scandalizes me. There's part of me that doesn't even like it. He didn't wait until we got our act together to pay us a visit. He didn't wait for us to get our moral act together, to end all the wars on the earth, to take care of poverty, to become incredibly loving people every minute of the day before he came and dwelt among us. He came into a world that was butchering the poor. He came to a world that was incredibly unfair and unjust, where women were property, where human beings could be sold and bought. 
He came into a world where, where blood and death and despair were the daily part of life. And he didn't wait until we got it together to show up and reward us with his presence. He didn't wait for us to do something to deserve his presence. He just showed up in the midst of the mess. That means maybe he could show up in your life. Because I think we've got about 1,200 messy lives here. I know mine is. I hide it pretty well. I'd lose my job if I didn't. I'd put on a suit, I'd comb my hair, but you don't see my heart. I mean, you see part of it. We all look in a mirror and we look at a world that is distorted by selfishness, that is distorted by ignorance, by a lack of knowledge and wisdom. And God will not wait until we get it all together in order to engage with us. We learn that by studying how the Word became flesh. So he's active, not passive. He's concrete, not only abstract. He's personal, not impersonal. He plays by his own rules, and he doesn't wait to give us the reward of his presence. He comes in the midst of the mess. Well, in closing, I'd like to suggest something, because some of you have decided to follow Jesus Christ already in your life. You've, you've decided you're going to be his follower. If you're going to follow Professor Howell, you're going to learn how to plot graphs on a calculator. The people that follow Professor Howell love plotting graphs. They love their calculator. They love math. They love the heroes of math, and rightly so. Because math is one way we learn about God's creative ability and how he's ordered the universe. But if you follow Professor Howell, you will begin to do things he does because he'll teach them to you and you'll practice them and you'll learn them and you'll enjoy them. If you follow Jesus Christ, wouldn't it make sense that you would begin to do what he does? That you might be active and part the corn stalks? and walk into someone else's life whose life is a mess? Would not following Jesus Christ mean that you would be personal rather than impersonal? That's one reason I think Jesus said, don't use titles. We're brothers and sisters here. This is a family. If you were a follower of Jesus Christ, would you not be concrete in your love? When Don Solomon parted the cornstalks, love took on a face. Love had hands. Love had feet. Love had a heart. Love had a mind. Would you not walk in and be the feet and the hands in someone else's life if you were a follower of Jesus? In a growing way, would you not move into other people's lives with love and acceptance and forgiveness right in the mess? right in the crisis, right in the midst of their moral failures. Not with a lecture. Not even with judgment. But just come in with an offer. Well, this is who the Apostle John thinks Jesus was and is. And my prayer for us is that we might make a thoughtful decision this year as we ponder his life, 
as to whether we want to be his followers or not. Not just whether we believe certain things about him, though that's critical too, but whether we want to actively follow him in order to become like him in the concrete reality of our daily lives. Let's pray. It is amazing, O Father, that you sent your Son so vulnerable, so small, to us who are so broken and so self-centered. Help us in the weeks ahead to at least explore and understand a bit more as to why you would do this. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.